This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. We're going to have roughly about an hour um, for Alex to give his uh, talk, and then we're going to have time for questions and answers, so please don't rush off uh, at the end. I'll hand you over to Chris Hoggins. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Joseph, for inviting me. I'm very glad to be here. Um, during the past three decades, uh, France has held the dubious distinction of being the West European country <clears throat> in which the extreme right has enjoyed its most sustained run of electoral support. While the far right has, from time to time, enjoyed high-profile high successes in countries such as Austria, more recently Sweden and the Netherlands, France is unique in that, almost without interruption, since 1984, the extreme right Front National has scored between 9 and 18% of the vote in almost every national election. Uh, with its founding leader, Jean-Marie Le Pen, running second only to Jacques Chirac in the 2002 presidential elections. Although its share of the vote uh, dipped sharply in the 2007 elections that brought Nicolas Sarkozy and his centre-right UMP party to power, <coughs> the Front National bounced back in last year's regional elections with 11.6% of the first round vote and under its new leader, Le Pen's daughter, uh, Marine, uh, looks set uh, to be a significant force in the run-up to next year's presidential elections. Now, the relevance of all this to the theme of Azen's current seminar series, Nation Building for the 21st Century, uh, Reflections on the Impact of Migration, Multinational, Multinationalism and Multiculturalism, the relevance of uh, what I'm going to talk about is not difficult to see. Granted that the Front National vote has been fueled essentially by anti-immigrant sentiments, it's clear that immigration has been a divisive factor in French politics. I don't mean by that that immigration has in itself engendered a weakening of national cohesion in France. My point, rather, is that immigration has been politicised in a way that has had that effect. And my aim in this talk is to try to shed some light on how this has happened. How, in a country whose political elites claim that France invented the rights of man, don't mention the American Revolution to them, how in a country that claims to have invented the rights of man, that presents itself, whose elites present the nation as an unshakable haven for refugees fleeing places of intolerance, how in these circumstances can an extreme right party peddling racism and Islamophobia have attracted such sustained high levels of popular support? Now, this question is closely connected with another one that has been much debated since the rise of the Front National. What means are most likely to succeed in combating the extreme right? In 1995, the political philosopher 
Pierre-André Taguieff synthesized the main elements in this debate by listing seven different approaches to what had been tried at various times in order to weaken the appeal of the Front National. The seven approaches which he listed were demonization, silence, imitation, soft alliances, republican frontism, intellectual harassment, and socio-economic intervention. Now, the last of these, socio-economic intervention, alludes to the fact that support for the Front National is rooted in high levels of economic insecurity among voters at the lower end of the socio-economic ladder, vulnerable to unemployment. Uh, Le, Le Pen and his party regularly poll a higher share of the unemployed than any other party in France. It's surely no coincidence that until recently, France had for many years the highest unemployment levels in Western Europe as a whole, together with the most sustained levels of support for the extreme right. Neither is it any coincidence that since the financial crisis of 2008, amid spiralling unemployment throughout Europe, the extreme right has been picking up support in many other countries. A broad but by no means mechanical connection between economic circumstances and support for the extreme right is apparent in variations in levels of support for the Front National since its foundation in 1972. This uh, table shows the percentage share of the vote of the Front National in every nationwide election uh, since the party was founded in 1972. And obviously the, 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 the most striking thing initially is that for the first 10 years of its existence, from 72 through until 81, the Front National was nowhere on the electoral map. But as you can see, ever since 1984, when it scored 11% uh, of the vote in the European elections that year, it's had roughly between 10 and 15% in the presidentials going up as far as in 2002, as far as 17% uh, of the vote. Um, as I mentioned, for the first decade of its existence, the party had no impact on nationwide, um, on national elections. Although joblessness had begun to rise following the oil shocks of the 1970s that put an end to record levels low levels of unemployment prior to the 70s. It wasn't until the 1980s that unemployment shot up to dauntingly high levels, reaching in the 1990s 13 percent. Following a by-election in 1983 in which the Front National grabbed the media spotlight, the party gained 11 percent of the vote in the 1984 European elections and since then it has scored 10% or more of the vote in every nationwide election except in 1999, 2007 and 2009. Now it's true with reference to the 1999 result which is uh, here, it's true that in the uh, late 1990s France experienced the first significant falls in joblessness after more than 20 years 
of seemingly relentless increases in the unemployment rate. But the Front National's low uh, share of the vote in 1999, just under 6%, probably owed more to a split within the party which shortly before the elections of the European elections of 1999 had resulted in the formation of a splinter party, the Mouvement National, which took 3.3% of the vote. When you combine the Front National with the Mouvement National vote, you're still coming up at around 10%, nearly 10% in 1999 for the extreme right. Similarly, while unemployment again fell significantly between 2006 and 2007, um, so we can see this decline in the share of the Front National vote uh, between its, its pinnacle in 2002, 17%, down to, uh, I think this was, if I remember correctly, I think about 5% in 2007 in the parliamentary elections. Um, the, the fact is that that slippage was actually beginning, this is the really interesting thing, was actually beginning before the financial meltdown of 2008. Um, and many observers, and I will be developing on this point, would, would say that this dip in uh, 2007, around 2007, the uh, presidential elections and parliamentary elections of that year, in fact, owes more to Nicolas Sarkozy's pandering to Front National voters uh, rather than to changes in economic circumstances. Again, while it's true that in just the last couple of years, the Front National's vote has begun to rebound, uh, scoring 11.6% uh, of the vote in the 2010 regional elections. It's true that this has come at a time when unemployment is again, has again been rising following the crash of 2008. I think that there are good grounds for believing that Sarkozy's tactic of mimicking the Front National has in reality had the effect of legitimizing it and as uh, Le Pen often said about this tactic of mimicry, imitation, when faced with a choice between the original and the copy, voters may tend to prefer the original. And that, I think, has been broader the way it's been, with the single major exception of 2007, to which I will return um, later. In any event, I think it's clear from this that the economic environment alone is insufficient to explain the ebb and flow of the extreme right vote. The other elements cited by Tagiev fall into two main groups. On the one hand, different ways of talking about the Front National, demonization, silence, intellectual harassment. And on the other way, on the other hand, different ways of acting towards the Front National imitation, um, soft alliances, republican frontism. Now, that second set of responses, imitate or make alliances with or uh, make alliances against, that's really what these three different alternatives are, they have to do essentially with the ways in which politicians uh, in other parties, especially the centre-right, behave towards the Front National? Should they copy it? Should they make deals with it? Or should they build broad coalitions against it? At various times, the centre-right has fluctuated in its response to this question. 
The other set of approaches, demonization, silence, intellectual harassment, includes, but is not limited to, political actors. Through research and publications, academics can have a significant influence in shaping attitudes amongst elites, while at a popular level, the mass media play an important role in helping to set the terms of public debate. Now, in considering, therefore, these issues, how do we explain the ebb and flow of uh, the Front National vote? What tactics seem to work more or less well in attempting to uh, contain or reduce that vote? My remarks uh, fall into uh, three main parts. In the first of these, I'll look briefly at the role of the media in shaping majority ethnic attitudes towards minority groups and the issues associated with them. Uh, secondly, uh, and at greater length, I will look at the role of political elites in other parties, the role that they have played in the developments that I've just outlined very briefly. And finally, I will look at the combined effects of media coverage, political discourse and public policy on minority ethnic attitudes. And the main thrust of my argument will be that politicians at the highest levels, especially on the centre-right, bear a heavy burden of responsibility for discourses and policies that have had deeply corrosive effects on ethnic relations in France. Let me uh, begin with a now uh, notorious cover story that was run by the right of centre Figaro magazine uh, in uh, 1985. I'm not sure how well you can see that. Is it? Yeah. If you could maybe dim the front lights, that would be helpful. There aren't a lot of images, but there are a few. Of course, the big question is how do you dim the lights? Ah. Uh, have been tried. Uh, the Front National, as I've said, first came to prominence during a by-election in Dreux in 1983, in the autumn of 1983, when local centre-right party officials entered into an alliance with the Front National to win a municipal election that they otherwise looked set to lose. And alliances of that nature have recurred from time to time at local and regional levels, but never at national level. At the other extreme, centre-right leader Jacques Chirac successfully called on voters across most of the political spectrum to join in a Republican front against Jean-Marie Le Pen in the second round of voting in 2002, presidential elections of 2002. More commonly, Chirac and his longtime rival Sarkozy have opted for a policy of imitation. Refusing to enter into alliances with the Front National while stealing many of its clothes in the hope of taking electoral support back from the extreme right. Sarkozy, for example, was unbelievably brazen in the 2007 election campaign in saying, I want every Front National vote that I can get. He was quite unapologetic about it. Yes, I want to get those votes back from the Front National. And this has fueled a long series of public statements and policy initiatives casting immigrant minorities as threats to French national identity. These go back 
as far as the 1986 parliamentary elections, when, taking a leaf directly from the Front National's playbook, Chirac led a coalition of centre and centre-right parties in the parliamentary election campaign of 86, pledging to reform French nationality laws so as to prevent second-generation members of minority ethnic groups from automatically becoming French citizens, uh, a pledge that would later be carried into law in 1993 under centre-right Prime Minister Edouard Balladur. Along the way, former centrist president, uh, former centrist president Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, in 1991, compared immigration to an invasion. Uh, a word which it's important to note in the French context resonates with memories of the Nazi occupation. In 1989, I mentioned the cover story in which I didn't show you, but the cover story in the Nouvelle Observateur, a manifesto by French intellectuals in which they compared the wearing of headscarves by three girls in this school in Cray to the Munich of the French Republican system. Munich, of course, being a byword for the feckless appeasement of Nazi um, tyranny. Um, so, in 1991, we have Giscard uh, making this comparison. I should add, Marine Le Pen made exactly the same comparison a couple of months ago and uh, got a week of almost non-stop media coverage uh, out of the fact that she made almost exactly the same statement 20 years later. Uh, this was 1991. Uh, not to be outdone, his long-time arrival, Chirac, almost exactly the same time, uh, expressed his sympathy for those who disliked, quote, the noise and smell of African immigrants, unquote. Uh, a younger rival, Sarkozy, uh, who by 2005 was serving as interior minister, uh, would describe unruly youths in the banlieue. The banlieue are, of course, the French equivalent of British or American inner-city so-called ghettos, in quotation marks. Sarkozy described unruly youths in the banlieue as racaille, scum, a remark that uh, shortly afterwards would be repeatedly cited as emblematic of their grievances by participants in the riots that tore through those disadvantaged and stigmatized neighborhoods known as the banlieue in the autumn of 2005. In his campaign for the 2007 presidential elections, Sarkozy pledged on nationwide television that if he, elected, that if he was elected, he would ensure that Muslims would not be permitted to slaughter sheep in their bathtubs crudely recycling an urban myth pandering to manifestly Islamophobic prejudices. I have a, a, a video recording from 1986 of a TV, French TV documentary, the title of which was uh, The Sheep in the Bathtub, all about this urban myth 
a quarter of a century ago. Crudely recycled on the most watched TV program of the entire election campaign, 10 million French viewers in February of 2007, the most watched apart from the debates between the two candidates uh, during the uh, election prompt. In the middle of the debate, uh, Sarkozy, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, so during the campaign for the 2007 elections, Sarkozy also pledged that he would set up a ministry for immigration and national identity, thereby institutionalizing the supposed need to protect French national identity from the threat of immigration. The man whom he appointed to head that ministry after his election in 2007 turncoat socialist Eric Besson duly orchestrated a government-organized national debate, in quotation marks, which quickly turned into a license for outpourings of Islamophobic sentiments. And in the middle of that debate, late 2009, Sarkozy publicly sympathized with Swiss voters who, in a flagrantly discriminatory nationwide referendum had voted in favour of a ban on minarets but not on church towers or synagogue cupolas. This, this was actually from the Swiss um, referendum. Of course, the, the minarets look menacingly like missiles. And uh, here is a Front National poster taking exactly the same image and transposing it uh, into uh, usage in France in 2010. Um, a few months after uh, that so-called national debate, Sarkozy's right-hand man, his interior minister, the man responsible for pursuing criminals and bringing them to justice, was convicted in court of making anti-Arab racist remarks and remained in office until a week ago. Despite uh, and in further acts of stigmatization, Sarkozy announced plans last year to strip criminals of immigrant origin of French citizenship. The only time in modern history when uh, anyone has been stripped of French citizenship was under the Vichy regime. He announced plans to strip criminals of immigrant origin of French citizenship. He targeted the Roma for special deportation measures. And his government pushed through a law banning Muslim women from wearing the burqa in any public space in France, according to... Um, a report by the French intelligence services which was used as uh, grounds for the necessity of this law outlawing the burqa there were at least 352 women in France wearing the burqa which is almost one for every day of the year and all of this last summer culminated in him being crowned by Newsweek as the face of Europe's new extreme. So, pretty dismal, really, record of um, mimicking uh, the Front National in moral terms, if you like, and 
I will come back shortly to the question of, well, did it pay electoral dividends? But just adding one ele further element to the question of the, the political record, the public policy record of the centre-right parties when in power, not surprisingly, and it should be said the centre-right has been in power not for all of the past 20 years, but for much of the past 20 years, the centre-right has failed lamentably to combat the discriminatory attitudes and behaviour which its leaders have far too often legitimised by the kinds of remarks and policies that I've just described. At the beginning of the 1990s, sociologist Michel Tribala found that the unemployment rate, beginning of the 1990s, found that the unemployment rate amongst young second-generation ethnic Algerians, most of whom, of course, were French citizens, was running at 40% for men and 42% for women. This was 20 years ago. At the end of the 1990s, Tribala found that the jobless rate had grown still worse, reaching 48% among young second-generation Algerians, most of whom are French citizens, and 53% amongst young women of Algerian origin. The preamble to the 2006 Law on Equal Opportunities, drafted in response to the 2005 riots, cited, this is in the preamble to the law, cited research findings showing that young people of North African origin with identical qualifications to those of white French youths had five times fewer chances of getting a job interview. Your CV is identical, but if you are of North African background, you have five times fewer chances of even getting a job interview. And this is just one of numerous surveys which have found widespread discrimination to be rife. Surveys which have taken place over the past 20 years. And yet, despite inscribing this into the preamble to the law of 2006, a provision in that law designed to prevent ethnic discrimination by requiring that employers recruit on the basis of anonymised CVs, so you wouldn't know what the ethnic origins were of the person that we're dealing with when you decided to shortlist for interview, a provision requiring employers to use anonymized C uh, CVs has remained a dead letter because successive governments have refused to issue the necessary decrees to actually put the law into force. Now, Sarkozy is not popular in politically progressive circles. Um, one of my best friends in France uh, has a particularly deep, uh, visceral hatred from him, which I won't say who my British equivalent of that would be for. I, I try n not to engage in hatred, but I do make occasional exceptions. This looks pretty good. How, how is that for everybody now? Yeah? Okay, we can still take notes if we want, but we can also see the screen. Jolly good. So the lady depicted here is Marianne. Marianne is the French equivalent of John Bull for Great Britain or Uncle Sam 
for uh, the United States. In other words, a kind of mythical cartoon figure deemed to personify the nation, the nation of France, or more particularly, the French Republic. So this is Marianne. In 1985, uh, and as you can see, four years before the original Islamic headscarf affair of 1989, here, Le Figaro magazine drapes Marianne in an Islamic veil and asks in a deliberately shocking image. This may not appear shocking to us, but it was absolutely calculated to be shocking to French readers, and asks, bottom left-hand corner, serons-nous encore français dans 30 ans? Will we still be French in 30 years? Claiming with lurid demographic projections that France is at risk of being overrun by immigrants from the Islamic world. Now this idea of French national identity being threatened by the presence of a Muslim minority on French soil, the Front National's stock in trade, had by 1985, the year after the Front National made its first national electoral breakthrough in the European election of 1984, this theme already by 1985 had been taken up by a large part of the political spectrum, especially, although not uniquely, on the centre-right. And since then, since 1985, since the mid-80s, it has been recycled endlessly by the French media and politicians, fueling a widely held perception amongst the public at large that the nation's future is threatened by Islam. The government-led so-called national debate on French national identity launched in 2009, which quickly turned into a pretext for an outpouring of Islamophobia to the point where they actually had to close the website on which people were writing in with their comments. Uh, that 2009 so-called debate on French national identity was nothing new. And I'll return later to the ways in which politicians in and out of government have handled uh, such matters. But for now, let me focus on the role of the media in helping to shape public opinion. Opinion surveys have consistently shown that Front National voters are obsessed by anti-immigrant attitudes linked with deep-seated feelings of insecurity. As many Front National voters have little or no first-hand uh, contact with minority ethnic groups, there can be little doubt that their attitudes have been at least partially shaped by media images, suggesting that immigrant threats, uh, immigrants are a threat uh, to social order. These minorities have long been and still are seen far more in news and current affairs programs, which of course fo focus primarily on social conflicts, far more in such programs than in more convivial TV genres such as uh, sitcoms, quiz shows, uh, and so on, featuring quote-unquote ordinary people. And of course the implicit effect of those and other Im Im imbalances is to suggest that minorities, since they're only seen in what we might call problematic parts of the TV um, spectrum, uh, are somehow inherently at odds with social norms. 
Moreover, in their handling of the news agenda, the media are often guilty of sensationalizing uh, relatively minor matters. A prime example of this was the massive media coverage of the first Islamic headscarf affair uh, in the autumn of 1989. So obsessed were the media by three teenage girls wearing headscarves, ignoring the estimated 350,000 of Muslim heritage not wearing headscarves. So obsessed were they by three teenage girls wearing headscarves that at times this so-called affair pushed into second place the momentous events that were leading to the breakup of the Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe. The front cover of Le Nouvel Observateur in the week that the Berlin Wall fell was actually devoted to a manifesto calling upon school teachers to resist the um, Islamic headscarf. The uh, the Front National, very interestingly, played a quite minor role in the 1989 headscarf affair, in which the main voices relayed by the media were those of mainstream politicians and intellectuals who took up various positions on what virtually all agreed was the problem of Islam. And the culmination of that hysteria in the final months of 1989 came with the Front National winning a parliamentary by-election in the town of Dreux, just to the west of Paris, with 61% of the second round vote. And yet, the Front National had hardly been in the news during the headscarf affair. In this and other instances, the recent government-led debate on French national identity being, I think, another case in point, support for Le Pen's party has surged when the media have focused on anxieties aroused among the majority ethnic population by the presence of a Muslim minority without the Front National necessarily being at the forefront of media coverage. In other words, the Front National's hard core of support, around 10 to 15% of the electorate, appears to owe less to direct media coverage of Le Pen and his party than to structural imbalances in media representations of minority ethnic groups, especially those of Muslim heritage, combined with the foregrounding by centre-right politicians of issues that play into the hands of the extreme right. In Taggart's typology, those who favour silence as a means of combating the Front National believe that if the media were to stop covering Le Pen's party, support for it would evaporate. This is reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher's attempts to prevent the Irish Republican Army from being uh, or not, not, no, sorry, Sinn Féin uh, from having um, and, and uh, IRA people being interviewed on British TV denying them what she called the oxygen of publicity. If you could only stop this oxygen of publicity, then support for the Front National would wither. This was the, uh, the argument put forward by those who favoured that you should keep the Front National off the media. Um, however, there is in fact evidence to show that media coverage of the Front National may, in some respects, have helped to strengthen opposition to the party. I just want to show one example of this. 
Um, opinion pollsters from the Sofres organization have asked respondents at regular intervals whether they consider the Front National to be a threat to democracy. So at the top, you've got those who consider he is a threat to democracy, and then you've got those at the bottom who think he's not a threat to democracy. And this starts in the closing months of 1983, just when he's making his first by-election breakthroughs, in fact in Dreux, this was uh, six years before the parliamentary victory uh, of the Front National in Dreux. Uh, and so people were asked, do you think that Le Pen and the Front National represent a danger for um, democracy? And as you can see, when the question was first asked back in 1983, only 38% of those questions thought Le Pen's party was a threat to democracy, uh, and 43% did not consider the Front National to be dangerous. But during the next four years, there was a steady rise in those um, considering uh, Le Pen's party to be dangerous, uh, reaching 67% in December 1988, and up to uh, the 70s in the early 1990s, while those taking the opposite view, considering that he was not uh, a threat to democracy, obviously fall away. Um, and since then, the, 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 the levels have variated somewhat, but they've tended to stay at about the levels that you can see in the early to mid-90s. And it seems likely that the low percentage considering the FN to be a threat to democracy in 1983, arose in part on the fact that the general public knew little about Le Pen's party at that time, so they wouldn't be in a position to make a judgment on the question. Uh, um, but, of course, the more they know about Le Pen's party in the 1980s, then the more there are uh, in the electorate that reach the view that he is, in fact, a threat to democracy. So you can argue that, in this respect, there's an element of some... Uh, effect uh, by the media contributing to hardening the opinion in uh, some parts of the French electorate. Of course, what we're still left with is, is this kind of incompressible hardcore, uh, which 10, 15 percent uh, actually voting for Front National at every election, and anything between 20 and 30, 33 percent saying that they actually like Le Pen's ideas. In, in opinion polls. Now, if fears about the future of French national identity, and more specifically, um, the supposed threat of Islam have been so widespread uh, amongst the French public, I, I nevertheless do not think that such fears can, can be attributed solely or even primarily to the media. So I'm moving on now to the second part of my remarks. Since the 1980s, there has been a seemingly endless succession of declarations and policy initiatives at the highest political levels, encouraging the French electorate to be mistrustful of immigrant minorities, especially those of Muslim heritage. Apart from the Front National itself, the politicians most inclined in that direction have been those on the centre-right where, of course, fears of losing votes to the Front National have been at their greatest. If you look at transfers backwards and forwards between the Front National and other parties, the biggest transfers take place between the classic centre-right parties and the Front National, and vice versa. As noted uh, by Tagiev in attempting to counter the electoral threat of the Front National, 
the centre-right parties have oscillated between three main approaches. Imitation, soft alliances, and republican frontism. I'll try and explain. Well, let me just... So imitation, obviously, is when you just basically copy ideas and say, we can do it better than the Front National, vote for us instead of the Front National. We're even tougher than they are. Soft alliances is you avoid actually saying at a national level that you're uh, making alliances with the Front National, but nevertheless you do deals, as was done in 1983 in Dreux, uh, at the local level, or as was done in the late 1980s and indeed later at a regional level. So those are so-called soft alliances. And then Republican frontism is when you band together with all the other mainstream parties in order to try to demonize uh, the Front National. Th these are the three different approaches, which in varying degrees and at varying time. Um, but, um, as I say, many, if you like, politically aggressive people would say, quite rightly, that Sarkozy has a lot to answer for in all this. However, I would argue that Chirac has every bit as much uh, to answer for as Sarkozy. Chirac served as president of France from 1995 to 2007. Let me just give you one. Remember, I mentioned as early as 1986, he was already taking playbook uh, items from the playbook of the Front National in order to present himself as able to do what the Front National was promising to do. But let me give you just one particularly telling and depressing example. Uh, this is Chirac's orchestration of the process that culminated in the law of March 2004, banning Islamic headscarves from uh, French state schools. Ever since 1989, when three Muslim girls were excluded from school by a head teacher in the town of Cray, who would later become a member of parliament under the colours of Chirac's party, there have been periodic media flare-ups over the wearing of Islamic headscarves. Now, from 1989 onwards, the courts consistently found that it was the head teacher who had broken the law by excluding the girls who had every right to wear those headscarves if they wished in French state schools. And the courts consistently ruled in that way for uh, the next uh, 15 years until, of course, a law was brought in to make it illegal. So it wasn't that the girls were breaking the law, it's that we don't have a law good enough with which to actually make sure they're breaking it. This was the kind of logic in which politicians were engaging. So, the self-appointed guardians of Republican principles decided that the answer was not to respect the law, but to change it, with the express purpose of outlawing a particular garment that they disliked. Now, in 2003, very little had been heard about the headscarf for almost 10 years since the last big flare-up, which was 1994. And anti-headscarf sentiment amongst the general public was at its lowest level ever in France. 
let me explain what I mean by that. These opinion polls show you uh, whether, whether people in France questioning the polls were in favour of or against a ban on the wearing of religious symbols at schools. If you go back to the first headscarf affair in 1989, the second headscarf affair in 1994, something between 75 and 80, 85% of majority ethnic French people said ban the headscarf. So this was, you know, as the Americans say, a no-brainer. But by the time you get to 19, sorry, to 2003, nothing had been, much had been going on about the headscarf for 10 years. Then actually, sentiment in favour of banning the headscarf was down to its lowest level ever. I think it was down to about 48%, if I remember there. And you could see that those in favour of allowing the headscarf to be worn were almost as numerous, this is the line at the bottom, were almost as numerous as those who wanted to ban it. So in other words, public opinion had really sort of calmed down about this issue. There was nothing new happening. There was no sudden wearing of headscarves in the spring of 2003. But then suddenly, Chirac announced that he was setting up a commission which needed to review the law on laïcité, separation of church and state, and he made it absolutely clear that he wanted this commission to recommend in favour of a law banning the headscarf. And that is what the commission came up with a recommendation to do in December 1993, and this was brought into, uh, sorry, 2003, and this was brought into law in March 2004. And of course, there was another media frenzy during all this. Note that the media frenzy is in response to an initiative by the President of the Republic, gratuitously picking this item out of obscurity and foregrounding it. So we can't say it's the media's fault. This is the President of the Republic telling this great nation of 65 million people, this is the most important issue of the day. We need a commission on it. And we have to pass the law urgently when it's tabled in late uh, 2003 after the commission has presented its report. And to nobody's surprise, what do we see? Public opinion, which is fairly evenly divided after 10 years of nothing much happening on the Islamic headscarf affair, the uh, support for outlawing the headscarf goes up and up and up and up, and the support for allowing the headscarf to be worn goes down and down and down, ending up so that by the fall of 2004, when the anti-headscarf uh, uh, law uh, came into effect, we'd gone back to this polarisation of opinion, majority of the opinion, against the perceived threat of the Islamic headscarf. Now, if I have time to move on to my third part, am I still yeah, alright for time? Yes. Okay. Uh, contrary to the myths peddled by politicians, and I'm coming therefore now to the final part of my remarks, there is a massive body of research data showing that young people of immigrant origin feel closer to the cultural norms dominant in France than to the cultural heritage of their parents or grandparents. Consider, for example, the data I'm just going to show you quickly, 
from surveys conducted in the early 1990s. First of all, this is a table of data amongst majority ethnic respondents, and it says, do you like or dislike the following groups? I've left this in French, partly because certain words like beurre don't translate terribly well into English. And basically what I did was I took the data of people saying that they like these ethnic groups, subtracted those who say they don't like these ethnic groups, and then you get a kind of a, a coefficient of the net uh, like for different ethnic groups. So Europeans are fine, West Indians aren't too bad, Asians are kind of so-so, but whoa, not a good thing to be in Maghrebin. Okay, Maghrebin, of course, is a French word for North Africans. And Burr, you can see that Maghrebin uh, come close to being as disliked as gypsies and travelers, people who are customarily regarded, of course, as having no place in the national community. And Burr, second generation people of North African origin, are down there as well. These are clearly at the very bottom of the ethnic hierarchy. This is typical of what you found uh, in the 1990s. This is 1992. Would you say that there are too many or not too many of? And so, again, I've done the maths here, and what you get is, oh, we don't have too many um, Europeans, uh, we don't have too many Jews, but, oh, my heavens, we have far too many Arabs. Uh, and, and Muslims merges. And the, these, these data you see endlessly uh, from the 1980s onwards. This one I think um, is particularly interesting because this is now asking specifically about the Burr. The Burr are second generation people of North African descent. So most of them are born in France, most of them have French citizenship. And so people were asked, do you think this majority anti respondents? Do you think of the Burr as French or as Arabs? So 32% said that they thought of them as French, 48% said they thought of them as Arabs. Apparently, some respondents insisted, although there wasn't a place in it in the, in the questions, and which of course tells us something interesting about how uh, public opinion polls are set up, but some people insisted that they wanted to actually say that they were both French and Arabs, and good for them. Uh, and that's how you get this 18%. But nevertheless, this, I think, is the really revealing thing, that when people just ask that point-blank question, they're more inclined to say they're Arabs than French. Now, let's go on to the self-perception of this second generation, these North Africans. So, uh, this was 1993. Uh, a survey of young people of Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisian origin in France, born to uh, immigrant parents. So, do you feel close to the culture and way of life of the French, or to the culture and way of life of your parents? And as you can see, um, those saying that they feel close to the culture and way of life of the French is very, very high. It's almost the exact mirror image of those percentages that you saw saying that uh, oh, these people are not French, you know, they, ooh, they don't belong here, we dislike them, etc., etc. Intriguingly, uh, even amongst practicing Muslims, who you might say might be those for whom the culture of the parents is the most important, even amongst practicing Muslims, um, more actually say that they feel closer to the culture of dominant culture of France than the culture of their parents. So, pretty interesting data, and there's lots of data like that 
uh, from the 1990s. Here's another one from the same period. Uh, this asked uh, not only people of Algerian origin, but also people of other Indian origins, what is your mother tongue? Okay. So, 52% um, of young people basically born in France of Algerian immigrant parents, 52% said that French is their mother tongue. Okay. Only 44% of people born of Portuguese immigrants said that French is their mother tongue. And uh, only 23% of people of Spanish origin. So let's just think about this for a minute. This, 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 this is really worth thinking about. So what's all this myth about they can never assimilate? They'll never be like us. They actually are more like the French than European immigrants. Yeah? It's a complete myth of this cultural alterity out there. One other incredible thing about this is, let's just think about that question again. Quelle est votre langue maternelle? What is your mother tongue? It's not French. What is a mother tongue? The answer is it's either Arabic or Berber. But in fact, their mother tongue in the true sense has been so completely displaced by the French language that they no, no longer think of it as their mother tongue. I mean, if ever there were to be... We'll take it up in the discussion, I promise. <laughs> if, if ever there could be an indication of the massive displacement of the cultures of origin, it's that people would actually wrongly say that French is their mother tongue. It's not their mother tongue. Their mother tongue is Arabic. But that's one they learned from their mothers before they learned French. Religious observance among young people born in France and immigrant parents. Again, this time we got Algerian Portuguese. So what do we notice? 30% of young people of Algerian origin say, I have no religion. Only 18% of Portuguese say that. 27% of French say that. So, so where's this great wall of religious fanaticism that we keep hearing about on the part of this minority ethnic group? It isn't there. Are you in favour of, against or indifferent to the wearing of veils or headscarves by Muslim girls wishing to dress in that way in state schools? Well, we know that amongst the general French population, as I mentioned, it's around 80% who say in 1989, 1984, the first two Islamic headscarves affair, who say they're against the wearing of, uh, of uh, Islamic headscarves in French schools. Look, look at the opinions amongst people of Muslim heritage. Actually, um, those who um, are in favour of allowing the headscarf to be worn in these surveys are outnumbered by people of Muslim heritage who want it to be banned. Again, where is this religious fanaticism that we're hearing about? And indeed, that tendency, those in favour of it allowing it to be worn, goes down between 1989 and 1994 amongst Muslims. Now, remember the 1991 Gulf War? That was, that was a field day for the media. So there was going to be this dreadful fifth column about to stab France in the back. Oh, yes. 
And what do we find when we actually ask the people concerned? Would you be willing to defend France if it were attacked? Well, about two-thirds say, yeah, I'd be willing to defend France if it were attacked. Not much difference for practicing Muslims as for the rest of the sample. These are second-generation North Africans. It will be interesting to know, unfortunately this question was not asked, of a parallel sample of young people of majority ethnic origin, would it have been a higher rate than two-thirds of majority ethnic French men willing to defend France at the time? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to it because it wasn't, it wasn't asked on this occasion. Now, the younger generation that of North Africans that came of age during the 1980s came to political prominence in 1983 through a nationwide demonstration called the March for Equality and Against Racism, the very name of which shows how deeply they had bought into the French equivalent of the American dream. The belief that in becoming, in key respects, French in their values and aspirations, the belief that equal opportunities should and would be afforded to them. Those hopes and expectations have been cruelly dashed by the language and policies prevalent among a disturbing number of politicians right up to the very highest levels of the Republic. Except for tiny numbers who have sided with Islamist terrorists such as the Algerian-based Groupe Islamique Armée, under whose direction Khalik El-Khal and other second-generation Algerians conducted a bombing campaign in 1995, there is little evidence of Islamic militantism among the mass of young people of Muslim heritage. During the riots which rocked the banlieue in 2005, at no point did any of the North African or black youths involved in those disturbances put forward a religious motivation for their acts. Their prime targets were police and public buildings, symbols of a state that had failed to protect them from discrimination, and cars, symbols of the material affluence denied to them by virtue of their exclusion from the labor market. Far from being Islamists, the rioters of 2005 were frustrated consumers. Survey data suggesting an increasing tendency to self-identify as Muslims and a hardening of opinion among young people of Muslim heritage in the face of perceived challenges to the religion of their forebears, we can see this in the last 10 years of survey data, these data should in my view be treated with caution. During the last 20 years, French journalists and politicians have repeatedly whipped up frenzied debates depicting the wearing of Islamic headscarves, as we've seen, as a threat to the fundamental values of the French Republic. Not only was the wearing of the headscarf perfectly permissible under the laws of the Republic until those were changed in 2004 with the specific intent of outlawing uh, the garment, opinion surveys, as I showed a few minutes ago, regularly showed that only a minority of Muslims in France actually wanted the headscarf to be allowed. 
was only when Chirac ratcheted up the stakes by pushing through legislation banning the headscarf, only then that for the first time a small majority of Muslims declared themselves opposed to this ban. With the youngest people of Muslim heritage, those aged 18 to 24, showing the highest levels of hostility towards the anti-headscarf law. So here, as in different forms, I think, during the riots of 2005, victims of harassment and humiliation appear to have responded with a show of symbolism designed to spite those by whom they felt victimized. What is it that you really, really dislike? Okay, I'm going to say I like that. It's this kind of logic that I think we can begin to see creeping in. In conclusion, a few days ago, an opinion poll was published that for the first time places the Front National leader, now Marine Le Pen, who recently succeeded her father at the helm of the party, for the first time, the Front National leader is now shown as actually being ahead of her rivals on both the right and the left in uh, opinion surveys about how people will vote in next year's presidential elections. All the signs are that Sarkozy has now lost the ability to poach Front National voters on the uniquely high scale that he succeeded in doing in 2007. With almost four of his five-year term, five years office, term of office now run, far from consolidating the hold which he got on the Front National vote in 2007, that's largely how uh, Sarkozy got himself elected, because the Front National vote defected in large measure to him in the 2007 pre uh, presidential elections. But since then, far from consolidating his hold over former Front National voters, Sarkozy, in the last few years, has lost ever more of them, with each of the long list of initiatives launched under his presidency in the hope of appealing to Front National voters the creation of a Ministry for Immigration and National Identity, now abolished because of its perceived failure. The fiasco over the government-orchestrated debate on national identity, which backfired so badly that Sarkozy absented himself from what was supposed to be its grand finale and which turned out to be a damp squib. The promise to strip foreign-born criminals of French citizenship recently voted down by the French Senate. The scapegoating of Roma, the anti-Burka law of last year, and a new debate on, quote, religions, meaning, of course, Islam, promised for next month, in direct knee-jerk response to the massive media coverage enjoyed by Marine Le Pen following uh, her Islamophobic utterances in December of last year. 
So, with each piece of ethnic scapegoating, hardcore extreme right voters have returned to the fold of the Front National, which under its new leader seems set to play a very prominent role in next year's elections. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, in, in France, they're, they're quite reluctant to <coughs> collect ethnic minority data at a national level uh, in a way that we find quite familiar um, in the UK. Do you think that, that, that perhaps it's a possible solution to France's integration problems to collect such data and to grant the ability to campaign for minority rights? Um, well, let me just f first of all um, say something about that traditional reluctance to collect uh, what we'll just for shorthand purposes call ethnic data. In fact, uh, that reluctance um, has been largely um, overcome. Uh, and you'll never guess who the uh, main person in facilitating its overcoming was. Nicolas Sarkozy. Uh, he backed various initiatives which were taken, um, which uh, now mean that ethnic data gathering uh, has been much more extensively legalized uh, than it was. And to be perfectly honest, and for example, we now have an absolutely major survey which is conducted on the new rules, uh, the first results of which are just uh, becoming publicly available. Uh, I think we're now at the stage where we are now going to have uh, frequent ethnic data gathering by government uh, um, agencies uh, in virtually every major uh, data gathering exercise apart from the, cen the census itself. And of course the census is the big one, but in fact you can do a lot with other uh, wide, you know, large scale uh, data gathering. So in fact the battle over ethnic data gathering has been uh, more won than lost, actually, um, as it happens. And to move on to the second part of your question, uh, can this help? Uh, in my view, it can. Um, as I'm sure those of you familiar with, with these debates know, one of the great difficulties in dealing with discrimination, it's not by any means the only difficulty, but one of the great difficulties in dealing with discrimination is getting uh, proof which will stand up to the legal test of proof of discrimination. And, and basically, um, uh, there are two different ways in which you can do that. One of them is what's called direct discrimination. The other one is indirect discrimination. Direct discrimination is when you say, I won't give you the job because you're a, you know, fill in the blank. And of course, because there are laws in France, as there are in Britain and other countries, then people nowadays don't normally say, I won't give you the job because, you know, fill in the blank because they know that uh, if they're foolish enough to do this in a way in which there's somebody else present, then they know they can be taken to court. And so, of course, racism frequently functions now in subterranean ways. Uh, it doesn't declare itself openly. In other words, direct discrimination um, can't be proved because people actually don't behave in this kind of direct discrimination on the scale that they did 30 or 40 years ago. But it doesn't necessarily stop people from behaving... Um, 
uh, silently, so to speak, and some people would say in certain circumstances systemically. I don't like the word institutional racism, but I think that there is systemic uh, racism in, in many um, institutions, and uh, which, of course, following the McPherson report in the UK, that's become very clear how widespread that is. Um, we know that under English law, if you can demonstrate that there's something wrong, uh, there's a disconnect between, for example, applications for jobs and the ethnic profile of people actually getting the jobs. This is a prima facie case for taking a closer look at the organisation to see whether or not there may be malpractice or whether practice can be changed, improved, to make people more sensitive to the need for fairness across all ethnic groups and so on. And in certain circumstances, you could even prosecute uh, 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 on the basis of um, uh, presumed uh, indirect um, discrimination. You can only do that if you gather ethnically-based data. And, of course, that has not been possible until now in France. But it is now much more a possibility. Now, how far this will become implemented, for example, in Britain, in the UK, there are requirements... You know that certain types of organisations actually requite, uh, uh, collect ethnic data as there are in the US. That's not yet a requirement in France. But certainly the fact that ethnic data gathering is now possible in a way that it wasn't three or four years ago means that if, and here's the other big if, if the political will is there to actually use ethnic data gathering, to perhaps even require ethnic data gathering, then this could become a significant tool in the fight against discrimination. So, in fact, quite a lot has been happening on that front. Excellent, thanks. That sounds like some uh, interesting progress is being made. Um, I'll now turn it over to the floor if anyone has a question. I'll take the gentleman blue jacket there, please. Someone like you, on one hand, Nicolas Sarkozy has been one of the most progressive pre French presidents by challenging traditionally taboo subjects like ethnic monitoring and positive discrimination. Yet on the other hand, he's referring to second-generation immigrants as scum. How do you explain that paradox? Not difficult, really. Um, uh, opportunism, isn't it? It's just political opportunism. I mean, he'll tell anybody anything if he gets him votes, uh, as you know, many politicians will. Uh, every politician, almost every politician, especially if you're aiming for high office, you have to try to aim to touch as many constituencies as possible. Um, the, 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 the more intriguing question is, you know, how can he do this without seeming to contradict himself? Uh, but, of course, you can also ask that question about other politicians. And so it's just political opportunism, that's all it is. He is an absolutely, uh, you know, obsessed... He was absolutely obsessed by becoming president. He would do anything. I remember talking to, I won't say who it was, but a senior civil servant who said, you know, Sarkozy would sell his own grandmother if it would get him the presidency. He's just absolutely unscrupulous um, and opportunistic. <laughs> Sorry, it's so, sim so simple. <laughs> yes, you, I know you had a question. There was something I said that I, 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 I know you didn't like. I had a couple of questions. I'd be very interested to, um, to know exactly how the uh, ethnic uh, data uh, collection is actually in practice being accepted. Because I, I live in France and I was... Um, I was quite surprised by the sta that statement that it, because the, the commission on statistics I think it set up the, the held last year as with the guy I guess the, uh, um, chairing it was quite inconclusive I think on 
whether, I mean, I think it remains quite an open debate. I'm not sure mm. that there is still, that there is a political will to, to pursue. I'd like you mm. to, 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 to have Can I answer that one first and then ask me the second one because otherwise I'll forget yeah. that, yeah. Um, I think the commission referendum was actually chaired by Yazid Sabag. Yeah, sorry. Um, and it, it, it kind of came to an inconclusive uh, conclusion because they'd been given a steer to do so by Sarkozy. He was kind of backing off his statistics by this time last year. Um, what's really intriguing to me is the, and th this really is intriguing, is the degree to which ethnic statistics, the collection of ethnic-based uh, data is acceptable to a majority amongst the majority ethnic population. I remember the first survey of this kind, which was carried out, I forget exactly what year, it's about four or five years ago. And I remember the absolutely unbelievably mendacious headline in Le Monde. I mean, this is Le Monde, newspaper of record, which said, uh, the French don't like ethnic statistics. And what actually the survey showed was that an absolute majority of those questions were perfectly willing to accept the, the, the collection of ethnic, of ethnic statistics. And there have been a number of surveys done since then which show at the level of public opinion that actually public opinion is ahead of political uh, opinion shapers such as those on the centre-right. See, what I think is really going on, to go back to the heart of my talk, and then by all means ask the second question. Just think about that first image that I showed you. The first image was this 10 to 15% of the electorate voting for Le Pen and his party, pretty well every election for the past quarter century. Where do these voters come from? Well, more than anywhere else, they come from the centre-right parties. But all of the other parties, I mean, he's taking 10, 15% of their votes. I mean, didn't exist as a party significantly until 1983. So they are all, all of the other parties, and this applies at times, I'm sad to say, to the parties on the left, have been frightened about the attrition of their own vote by Le Pen. So what actually has happened is that this 10 to 15%, this tail has been wagging the whole electoral dog for the last 25 years. The number of elections, as I predict will be the case in 2012, because Marine Le Pen has already set off on this road, in which the Front National, with its 10 to 15% of the actual or protected vote, has actually set the agenda for the debate is astounding. So, if you look at French public opinion as a whole, it's actually much more open to say ethnic data gathering than most political elites were until Sarkozy, you know, took uh, certain steps three or four years ago. Give another example of this. Um, if you look at the willingness of the French to accept, uh, absolutely stunningly, to accept what the French call positive discrimination, which is uh, uh, affirmative action, if you like, in American parlance, you actually have a series of public opinion polls showing a majority of those interviewed amongst the majority ethnic population willing to support 
uh, affirmative action, positive discrimination. So, um, you know, I think, I, think, I think it's very, very important, notwithstanding all the dreadful things that I've been recounting, to understand that French public opinion is not this monolithic racist block in which everybody thinks like Jean-Marie Le Pen, but uh, often I truly believe, I truly believe, that, that, that politicians on the centre-right have actually been behind, pub, lagging behind public opinion rather than ahead of it. You have a second question? Yeah, I mean, just a Arabic or Berber. Arabic or Berber, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I wondered about this, given that you know there may be households in which French is the spoken language, but you know, and in, 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 in yeah. the con I'm doing I'm doing some research on this issue, not with Algerians, but with um, uh, African, Black African origin communities, and I, I, and the mother tongue issue comes up, sure. and French. Amongst the great majority of migrants to France from North Africa and West Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the great majority of them, until the 90s, came to do working class jobs. They were very poorly educated, had virtually no edu education qualifications. Something like 85, 90% of uh, Algerian immigrants were illiterate uh, and so on. So these, they really, uh, you know, their, their first language was definitely not French. Some of them spoke some French, which they picked up during the colonial period. But the mother tongue of the parents was definitely Arabic or Berber in virtually all cases yeah, from, from North Africa. Um, and by the same token, therefore, their children would have learned from their parents, not French, but they would have learned initially Arabic or Berber. Now, one of the, one of the things that was happening in the 1990s is that, of course, new labor migration has been, well, it was really eliminated in 1974 from outside the European Union. And the only kind of new labor migration which is taking place legitimately from outside the European Union um, is on the grounds of certain professional skills. And of course, some of the migrants coming in the 1990s who've tended not to come from North Africa, but to come from other places, including West Africa, have tended to come from better educated backgrounds, where of course they would have had French, not necessarily as their mother tongue, but would certainly have learnt it at, uh, at school. So I think the language issue does vary there. Where West Indies are concerned, of course, French is their mother tongue because uh, well, it's Creole, if you like, but nevertheless, the whole school system in the West Indies, um, French West Indies, uh, French is the language of instruction. So I agree there are some variations there. We shouldn't forget 
that the largest ethnic minority group in France is that of North African origin. And of course, they've the, been the one that's been at the, the centre of the most sort of vigorous debates, which I've been describing since the 1980s. You're absolutely right that the other groups involved, and those groups actually have grown demographically, they've grown in importance, particularly from the 90s onwards. And so, for example, in the rights of 2005, uh, people of, young people, young men of sub-Saharan and or West Indian origin were clearly visible alongside some of North African origin. From now until the next presidential elections, do you foresee the centre-right continuing to emulate the 2007 presidential strategy? Mm -hmm. And will the Socialist Party ever break the paralysis of the early 1980s and, and challenge the status quo? I'm not quite sure what you mean by your last point about the... In the early 1980s, when Mitterrand uh, promoted the idea of the right to difference. Oh, all right, yeah. Right, right. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the left will ever return to the right to difference and, you know, the idea of multiculturalism without using the word and so on and so forth. It's going to stay well away from that. Um, I think a really intriguing question is, uh, will Sarkozy and his lieutenants, will they, uh, you know, continue to do what they've been doing since 2007, which is to you know, go through these constant kind of waving the national identity flag and, you know, they're about to do it next month in another debate about religion and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, they've only got a year left and they don't seem to have many uh, shots now left in the locker room. Um, I, for what it's worth, I, I have felt for about the last six to 12 months that there's a good chance that Sarkozy will be defeated in 2012. I would now, having seen these latest opinion surveys, because remember, until a year or so ago, it looked like the Front National was not you know, challenging as much as it now is. I would actually now go so far as to say that if I were asked to bet, I am not a betting person, so I never bet. But, but <laughs> if I were asked to bet um, on one important proviso, which will bring me back to the second part of your question one second, on one important proviso, I think that if Sarkozy is a candidate in 2012, I think he will be defeated on one important proviso, and that is that the left does not shoot itself in the foot again. And that's a big if. Good question. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the trend um, is, is clearly there. I mentioned Michel Tribala, um, who really produced the first large-scale ethnically-based surveys back in the early 1990s. One of her assistants, former assistants, who's now become really the front-runner in this, is Patrick Simon, who works for the Institut National d'Etudes Démographiques, which is one of the two main government-financed statistical institutes, if you like, uh, in France. Um, and, you know, they have been, um, uh, I, mean, I mean, 
the, 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 the recent survey which I mentioned, which we've got the first results coming out now, is led by Patrick Simon. And he has unquestionably been influenced by, you know, Anglo-Saxon um, schools of thought, if you like, although, of course, he, he doesn't say that too publicly uh, in the French context for fear of, uh, you know, the, the kind of backlash um, that you can imagine. I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, all states, whether it be the French Republic or, you know, the UK or the US, wherever, they are all dependent in some degree on academics for the construction of knowledge. I mean, you know, it's a bit like what, what would be the the epistem, well, the military industrial complex, you know, the phrase of 40 years ago. I mean, there's this kind of state academic complex, isn't there? Where, I mean, for example, many academics can't actually conduct certain research unless they get state funding. It's been true in the UK uh, that, that, that much of the funding which has gone into ethnically based research couldn't have been done had there not been uh, public funding available for that, which was not there to the same extent in France. Um, but, you know, I think policymakers have come to realize uh, that they can't bury their heads in the sand forever. Um, and, you know, the, the, the empty rhetoric of, well, we can't possibly talk about ethnicity because it's against Republican principles which you heard over and over and over again in the 1990s, um, if that's been put on one side to a greater degree, I think it is in part because academics, beginning in the 1990s, were willing to work on these issues and to argue the need for these kinds of data to make intelligent judgments about society and public policy issues. So I think, I think the two groups, you know, do interact although they're obviously you know neither one totally controls the other They change too slowly. I, I think there is change. No, I think there is change. I, I, I think there is change. Uh, I have to say, I mean, I've been working on these issues for 30 years. During the first 10 to 15 years, I always tried, you know, to be helpful. I try and avoid the word optimism, but I always tried to be helpful, you know, because I was talking about some of the depressing things that I've been talking. I've been talking about this in the 1980s and saying to people in France, "Listen, if you don't do something about this, you're going to have problems, right?" And I was kind of hopeful until the 1990s when I slid into fairly deep depression about these matters because the, the unwillingness to address them. You know, if you look at what Sarkozy did on ethnic data two or three years ago, um, the rights of 2005, it shouldn't take nationwide rights to do it, but the rights of 2005 did actually get the then President of the Republic to describe discrimination as poison, 
you know, I mean, which is not the kind of language that one hears every day. Uh, he did actually uh, encourage his government to bring in the 2006 law, which I mentioned, equal opportunities. That's the right direction to be going. We want equal opportunities. This is what we should be doing. But then, of course, when it came to implementing the, uh, the, the law through the necessary decrees, they, they failed to implement it. Why? Because there were no more rights in the, in the bond year. And so it's kind of going in fits and starts, but I'm trying not to lose hope. No, 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 I, I'm not optimistic. I'm not quite sure which direction it's going in. Because it's multi-directional in the right. case. And the South Coast issue, I don't really think it's only op like um, opportunism. You know, the, 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 the way that his, his, his seeming um, support for positive discrimination and recognition became also a, a kind of, a kind of a, the underbelly of it was also about um, data gathering on particular kinds of problematic categories, and that's the way it came to be discussed, led to a lot of kind of um, confidence issues about where he, what he was really about. Sure. I mean, if you look at your way in the line, in the lines of his concerns about uh, that front, Juan Estrenel, um sucking up their, his, the vote, his policies are completely, or his approaches are completely evolved. I mean, at the beginning of his mandate, he was bringing in all these very sort of colourful types into the government to make a very visible statement right. about where right. he was going. And all those people have, in the last uh, few weeks or so, and, and months, been completely right. sidelined, even though they were just sort of figureheads for a kind of a, a posturing that he wanted to, he wanted to do. So I'm, I'm kind of, if the political will wasn't there in this country, the existence of political will around those issues was what drove them. Correct. You know, the fact that the Commission for Racial Equality was set up and actually set tone mm. and actually took up uh, racial discrimination cases, gave giving people the confidence to imagine that they were in a normative environment which made it possible. Mm. In France, mm. and this is nothing. I mean, ALD has become, which is the equivalent to the CRE that was created, the former CRE that was created, has become a very high problematic institution taking on board issues, um, take, taking a view against um, particular categories of minorities that make the whole thing very murky indeed. So I just, I, I'm, I'm very concerned about um, equating uh, sort of policy approaches with political will going in that same direction. And I think Sarkozy's, uh, and all, you know, not understanding what we said about Chirac having set this up, Sarkozy's uh, um, the experience doesn't really give much, gives a lot of cause for concern. It does, absolutely. Yeah. Because as you correctly say, you know, in the first year or so of his period in office, <laughs> then there were some progressive um, policies being developed. Um, and the big, you know, the really big moment when you could see uh, the, the change was last summer, it was summer of 2010. Uh, which was three months after the Front National had uh, jumped back up in the regional elections of, of March, which came right after this national identity debate. And it was just absolutely plain as a pike staff that Sarkozy had decided um, that, you know, the only way to proceed now is um, by being tough, 
by, by appearing tough on everything. And as you say, all of those uh, more progressive things which were there in the first year or, or two uh, are just gone. Um, and so what we're back with, I'm sorry to use the image again, but what we're back with is this wretched 10 to 15% of the electorate, the tail wagging the whole electoral process. So this, of course, is different from France is different in this respect from the UK. I know, I know the France, sorry, the UK has got its extreme right parties, but they've never had this prominence, thank heavens. So, you know, if one's trying to find some way, um, wearing a sort of political hat now, as distinct from merely discussing these issues as an academic, you know, if one's trying to find some way of um, uh, of beating back. Uh, this 10 to 15 percent, then it seems to me that imitation clearly doesn't work. We, we should have learned that by now. So what are the other two strategies? Well, the other two strategies are demonization uh, and or republican frontism. Um, in other words, you actually, uh, instead of you know the center-right constantly working against the left, why don't some of these parties, you know, work somewhat more together in order to, you know, to say we don't need the 10 to 15 percent of the vote of, uh, of Le Pen, and we don't need to worry about that part of the electorate. Now, obviously, this would be a political um, uh, earthquake to achieve this kind of thing. It was, of course, done in 2002 in the very special circumstances of 2002, where the left shot itself so comprehensively in the foot in 2002 that it didn't even have a candidate in the second round of the election, which left only two candidates in the second round of the presidential election, namely Chirac and Le Pen. And Chirac, with uh, support from most of the other political leaders, in other words, those on the left, called for a Republican front against the Front National. And I actually think, that what, as I predicted, I'm not good at predicting things, but I was right about this. I predicted that when it went into the second round, that there would be virtually no increase in Le Pen's vote in the second round. And I was right. Uh, if you actually look at the total number of voters, it was hardly different in the second round uh, for Le Pen. It's hardly different in the second round. Uh, than in the first round. In other words, what I'm saying is there's this 10 to 15% hardcore that almost no matter what you do, it's going to be there. Yeah. So you've got to do something without allowing it to dictate the terms of everything else. Now, in the second round of the 2002 election, second round, it became easy because it was literally the pen against everybody else. So everybody else voted for Chirac to show what they thought of Le Pen. Everybody else except the you know, 15, 18% or whatever it was that voted for him. So, um, I mean, it is worth remembering, to go back to something I said a few minutes ago, that, um, you know, this hardcore is not the totality of the French electorate. And in the special circumstances of 2002, we did see a Republican front against Le Pen. I think it would be very hard to foresee circumstances in which something similar might happen. But at least it's creative thinking like that that we need instead of just making the same mistakes that have been made for the past 30 years. That's, 
that's the sort of direction that I would try to take the debate in. Excellent. Thanks, Louis. One more question. Um, well, firstly, I was just wondering whether um, this data that you showed us at the end, very interesting things about self-destruction and things like that, is that uh, available to find, or could it be, sorry, made available to find? Read my book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> the, 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 there's a great poster up in, in Tallahassee, um, and it's a, by a church. I forget now which church. And it's got it's got the um, you know the Michelangelo finger, the divine you know pointing downwards, and it says, "Read my book. There will be a test." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> No, no, they won't be a test. It might be slightly away from uh, the discussion we've been having, but um, um, it's a linguistic question, really. Do you think the term, and if Islamophobia in French would be Islamophobia, mm -hmm. so do you think that this term phobia is actually not a helpful term? Because uh, I had a discussion with an um, acquaintance. Uh, who, who said that xenophobia was a, a fear of, um, of foreigners and that therefore it was far more defensible than racism because the fear is defensible that arachnophobia is not really a, an irrational hatred of spiders where you want to kill them and you shouldn't. Um, it's, it's a fear of spiders, it's not your fault. And that this, this was his sort of justification in a way. Of what? Of, of, what? of, of his xenophobia. I, I called something he said xenophobia. And Islamophobic, and and he said, well, a fear is something defensible. And so I was wondering whether you might have any views. Obviously, it's not defensible to be xenophobic, in my opinion. Is this term that the the use of phobia is uh -huh, that actually right. But, okay, well, I think there's two or three, you know, quite different points there. Just to deal with the very last one first. You know, what, well, what what is the etymology of phobia? Yeah, it's a Greek word. It means fear. And so, of course, as you say, certain fears may be legitimate. For example, I, I, you know, if I were alive uh, in uh, Nazi Germany in the 1930s, I would have feared uh, uh, Adolf Hitler, you know, and my uh, Nazi phobia would have been entirely well-founded. But still dealing with that first point, I think the fact is that the, the suffix phobia is now used in a different way, not just in that literal sense to say fear of, but also to say irrational, prejudiced, hatred of. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's kind of, we, I don't think we should be too literal-minded about our understanding of the word. So that's the first thing, just the, the suffix phobia. I'm well aware of the point you make, and uh, you know, I've at times have felt a little uneasy about it, but as I say, if we look at common usage today, it means an unprejudiced, sorry, a prejudiced rather, a prejudiced um, dislike or antipathy. So The second point is, um, I thought for a minute you were going to say, well, it's all right to be xenophobic, but it's not, or your friend was saying, it's all right to be xenophobic, but, you know, I'm not Islamophobic. I, I think xenophobic is, is pretty well the most useless of the various, you know, conceptual tools that we've got to talk in contemporary terms. I'm not saying at times it hasn't been a useful concept, um, because it's very obvious um, that the people who are being targeted by these prejudiced um, 
hatreds or certainly prejudiced dislikes and discriminatory behaviour, the people being targeted that way are not being targeted because of their citizenship um, in two senses. First of all, many of these people are French. Um, so, you know, uh, you, you, if you want to be xenophobic, you're hitting the wrong people. And secondly, there are lots of people who aren't French and who are treated very nicely. And I'm one of them because I've got a nice white skin and wherever I go to France, I don't have a problem, do I? Because I'm not one of these groups that... Da -da 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 -da. So I think that xenophobia is a pretty useless concept in contemporary France or the contemporary UK. I'm absolutely certain um, that Islamophobia is a very useful, a very pertinent concept in the French as indeed in the British concepts. And I think when you consider that it's only probably 10 years, certainly in the French context, I think it's less than 10 years since the word Islamophobia has gained any real currency. Probably only five, six, seven years. Britain, it's more like 10, 12 years. I think we needed that word to describe clearly what's going on. Because, just before, I, by all come back in, I know this is a, a complex and sensitive area, but, and this may well, uh, what I'm about to say may well also relate to your point. Another word that I'm deeply um, um, diffident about is the word racism. Um, because I think that a lot of the uh, uh, prejudiced hatred of people in France and a considerable amount of it in the UK, whilst it may be triggered by skin colour, physical appearance, which, of course, is an essentializing view of these people, that, though they must be from North Africa, therefore they're all Muslims, therefore, you know, they're all jihadists. I, do, I, I understand the logic, but this is not biological racism. You see what I'm driving at? This is an essentializing culturalism. And, and so I find the word racism one uh, which... You know, we need to be very careful about how we use it, if we're going to use it. Whereas I think that Islamophobia, I mean, I just showed you some of the data there, it's absolutely transparently clear that there's a lot of Islamophobia in France. But, so, this problem of um, the justification on the great work you said is like uh, for the Balkan And like all of these concepts, we have to explain clearly what we mean by them, yeah, exactly. uh, which, which fortunately in a context like this, we have the time to do in media soundbites and political discourse all too often. Isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Republican France, 
you might get different um, answers. And the issue about racism is one that people who are Muslim but black are very, or, or Muslim or not Muslim and black, mm. so African origin or West Indian origin, might raise the work of Ined, uh, Patrick Simon is beginning to suggest some of right. these things, that the discrimination that people face um, is not necessarily uh, related to outward um, religious symbols or, and so on, but racially based. And I wonder, because of France's particular kind of history, talking about these issues as race issues mm -hmm. is problematic, whereas in the UK, because of its history of uh, race, uh, Kind of anti-racism and um, defining discrimination along racial lines. We're much more at ease with we have been at least about talking about this kind of discrimination as a racism. Yeah. In France, it remains taboo. Even those people who you interview and you try to get up to these issues uh, are still uncomfortable, but eventually mm. also talk about it in those terms. Yeah. So I wouldn't be so. Um, I, I, I'm struggling with myself, but I do think. I do think because of the way is, is Islam or Islamophobia has been discussed, not just in France, but more globally, um, it, it might have also shifted the way we think, you know, mm -hmm. the way we think debate it. Right. Uh, two, two or three points um, in, in response. Um, um, sorry, I, I, there was something you said right at the end that I wanted to respond to first. Let me just... Uh, I'm trying to remind myself what it was. Uh, sorry, I've lost that point. But let me tell you the other two points. Um, um, it, it is true, and this gets to me with that mention at an early point in the discussion, that in the last roughly 15 years, um, groups from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, the French uh, Caribbean, uh, French-speaking Caribbean, have uh, become more visible. Uh, in, in various ways uh, in France and one of the, the things which has uh, come out of this has been for the first time I uh, forget now, I think it was about 2005 that the first of these associations was set up for the first time you actually have associations in France setting up calling themselves associations of black people it was previously, you know, for the reasons that you've indicated